one of the weird practices that we have as human beings uh, is that at the end of every year, uh, we make these things called resolutions. Um, some of you, no doubt, have begun to kind of think through what your resolution might be uh, for the coming year, where we think through habits that we want to drop or habits that maybe we want to pick up, things to do or things to not do. We look back at ourselves over the past year or decade, and we develop a plan and declare we're going to start uh, working out. I'm going to start um, working to be more present, to stop interrupting, to eating healthier. I'm going to read a book a month. Whatever resolution you might have, uh, we all think through the ways that we want to do this. But here's the thing with resolutions. Even though all of these things are good and most of the time simple, they're not bad things or even that hard of a thing, really, if you think about it, uh, most of us, uh, well, they don't really go anywhere. Um, we can make smart goals. We can make sure that they're, um, what's SMART stand for? Something measurable. Um, What's the, what's the S? Specific. specific. Yeah, so we can make it specific. We can make it measurable. Is it attainable? Realistic? No. A is what? The NyQuil. Attainable. And then what's R? Researchable? No. Um, responsible. Realistic. And then T is time-oriented, right? So here's the thing. We can make that, or we can download. Like, there's app after app that you can download uh, to monitor your workout schedule or your diet or whatever it might be. There's apps now to help you quit smoking. There's apps to do anything. There's an app for that. We can have the, the smart goal. We can have the app. We can have everything. We can buy the Peloton. We can buy whatever we need it is. Um, and yet most of it doesn't stick with us. I don't think I'm alone in that, that story. At least that's mine. Uh, last year for my resolution was, all right, I'm going to get to a healthier weight um, and so that started with um, doing Whole30 in January, um, which was miserable, um, <laughs> but was also, it was really good. I mean, I lost 20 pounds in a month, um, which was crazy. And my wife was doing it too, and she just hated me um, because God, there's something about men. We just drop weight the second we quit drinking beer. Um, <laughs> and so it was awful, but I lost 20 pounds. And I'm going to do that again this year and probably lose that again. Why? Because after January, what happened? February, March, April, May, I went back to Panda Express, and 15 of that 20 pounds came back on me, right? And I was kind of right back where I went. Uh, the, the thing with this is year after year, we're unable to live up to our resolutions. Because by the time we get to Valentine's Day, the gyms are empty. Our spin bike has just become a coat hanger. Our freezers have four different types of ice cream. Um, our books remain unopened as we remind Netflix that, yes, we are indeed still watching. <laughs> this is where we find ourselves. The next year comes around, and all we do is we find, dig out our resolutions, and we just write again next to whatever it is. It's the new year, but it's not the new you. It's the same you. Uh, there's some stats we looked into. Uh, 36% of Americans report uh, that with resolutions, they're able to keep them for about a month or less. So 36 of us, we make a resolution. Like me, we get to February and it's out the door. Uh, 81% are able to keep them for about six months, half the year. Good job, 81% of you. But only 11% are able to make permanent change. So 11% New Year's resolutions are able to actually do anything from that. A study found that 46% of participants who made New Year's resolutions were 10 times more likely to succeed versus those just deciding to make life uh, changes at other times of the year. So think about this. 11% is the high mark of when we are most likely to change. Any other time of the year, it's a 46% drop-off, or 10, 10 times drop-off for, for about half of most people. 
And so the thing is, is that uh, this, I, I just think we, we, we're not very good at changing. And even the 11% of us that are able to make it, the 11% that their resolutions stick, it ultimately leads to them being miserable or making everyone else miserable. The people that get the diet, what are they? They're constantly complaining about what they need to do to stay in, in, in you know, ketosis or whatever. Uh, or or the, they're, so they're making us miserable or they're miserable. Or, or the, the, every single thing about resolutions is even when we get through with them, it, it ultimately leads to, you know, the shame that we felt over our body looking a certain way is now replaced by some kind of vain, you know, pride over how we feel about our body. We don't seem to be able to get much better. I mean, consider this. <clears throat> Historians tell us that we've been doing some form of New Year's resolutions since the Babylonians. Uh, 4,000 years of New Year's resolutions, and, and we see them showing up throughout Rome, throughout time. New Year's resolutions is not a new thing. And yet, when you read about the vices and the problems and the issues that were happening with the Babylonians and with the Romans and now with us, it's still the same problems. It's still the same issues. It's still the same personality conflicts and issues that happen. And so here's the thing. We have had 4,000 chances for humanity to turn over a new leaf with an added 46% chance of an additional percentage to help us turn over that new leaf for there to be some kind of new you. And yet humanity still seems to be the exact same way. At a psychological level, think about this. Why do human beings make resolutions? Why do we turn over uh, a new year and decide that we're going to turn over a new leaf? A new year, new you, as it were. Uh, My dog does not care about not interrupting um, or about his weight or about his need to get healthier, right? Um, He doesn't care about he needs to budget or whatever. Um, There is something within, whether if you want to just limit human beings to our lizard brain that we have, uh, some remnant of evolution, why do we care about getting better? And why do we seem to care about something that is so unattainable? There's something going on within the human system. And why, while Babylonians were making New Year's resolutions 4,000 years ago, uh, Israel, uh, the Jewish people were telling a story that, that played itself out a little bit differently. Uh, one that was focused that, that any change for humanity was not going to come through humanity resolving to be better, but something else. And this idea is, is really what we're getting at in our final week within our uh, study looking at the opening verse of Mark, um, where you'll see it behind me in Mark 1.1, 1, 1, uh, where the gospel of Mark opens up saying this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For the past two weeks, we looked at uh, Jesus, where Pastor Isaac uh, looked at what it means for Jesus to be the one that saves us from our sins. Last week, we looked at Christ, what it means for Jesus to be king. And this week, what does this title, Son of God, mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? And not just what would it have meant, but what would it mean for Mark and for Mark's audience when he wrote his gospel? For those original people that were reading it, what did, when they heard Son of God, what did it bring to mind for them? Well, if we want to look, we can get an idea of that, or at least see how this plays out in continuing in another gospel in Matthew's. Uh, You'll see on the side behind me, where right after what we looked at last week of the wise men coming to visit the infant Jesus, uh, they hear of uh, an attempt on baby Jesus' life because of this kind of prophecy that he is the king of the Jews by the current king of the Jews, Herod, who makes an attempt for the life. He's going to kill children. And so Joseph is warned in a dream to leave. And so, and then verse uh, 13, this is what we see. Now, when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, 
Take the child Jesus and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So the story of Christmas is kind of setting up here where Jesus goes from little baby in a manger to now becoming a political refugee and moving to Egypt for safety in the midst of an oppressive government. And what's interesting, though, is that Matthew connects this story of Jesus going down to Egypt so that he might return to this prophecy, he says, that as it was written in the scriptures, this idea spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son, Uh, which for Matthew's audience would have been a a head-scratching moment. Because this prophecy he's getting at comes from the prophet Hosea, but Hosea's not talking about Jesus, this son who comes out of Egypt. Hosea was talking about the nation of Israel. And and the prophet was using this language of a son or Israel, this whole nation as a firstborn son of God being brought out of Egypt. And Matthew seems to go, oh yeah, that's Jesus' story now too. So it seems as though when Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, excuse me, refer to Jesus as the Son of God, there is a narrative, there is a story that that is being placed over. That Jesus is the sequel to some prequel, some story of the Son of God. And that's what I want to look at today. And so as kind of a setup, where we're going is um, today's going to be more kind of... um, Topical, normally what we do at collectives, we'll kind of go like, you know, through a passage, kind of, you know, a couple words at a time and just asking questions of it. Today, what I'm going to try to do um, with the power of the Holy Spirit and Dayquil uh, is um, less verse by verse, but more summarizing the whole story of the Bible. So I might quote little things here and there or point you to certain things, but more of I want to just try to kind of summarize what this Son of God, what does this mean for the Israelite people, for Mark's audience? Um, So we're going to kind of jump around, and um, if if you miss the kind of verse-by-verse, don't worry, you're going to get almost all of that is going to be next year. And so today will be a little more, the the, the word is topical, more looking at this topic of Son of God, how it shows itself throughout the story of the Old Testament. And what Matthew and Mark are calling our attention to is that this theme of Son of God, as we'll see, it all culminates or is fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus is the fully filling of this theme of what that means for us. And so and what, 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 what we'll see, what we're going to kind of do as we break this down is um, a kind of three-part way of understanding Son of God. Um, first, with formula, a kind of a formula. What are the ingredients? What does Son of God mean? What's going on behind uh, the scenes when we say Son of God? And next, how Son of God, there's actually a failure around this concept and that when we get to Jesus, we find the fulfillment of what Son of God means. So that's where we're going to be going. Um, why don't we pray, though, before we do that? Let's just ask um, for God to speak uh, through this, this theme and this topic today. Uh, Father, we um, are grateful that we get to know you as Father um, because of the work of Jesus, your Son. God, we pray that today you might um, speak uh, to each of us to receive Jesus as uh, the Son who invites and, and calls us to know uh, you as Father as well. God, I pray that you would uh, open our ears. I pray that you would, um, God, speak through uh, me um, as uh, my prayer is that you would do each week, that you would um, bring something to our minds and our hearts uh, through uh, what your, your scriptures are saying. And so God, pray, we pray that you be here. Uh, be with us and speak to us. Let me pray. Amen. 
So what we'll do first is let's look at this kind of formula as we think through the theme throughout the Old Testament. Uh, as we just saw where Matthew quotes from Hosea, uh, the, the prophet points to Israel, this whole nation of men and women, all being called the Son of God. Uh, this is the theme that shows up throughout the Old Testament in the book of Exodus where uh, God is calling for Israel to come out of slavery in Egypt. He refers to this whole nation of men and women and children as his firstborn son. And so Israel is talked about in the Old Testament as being the son of God. Uh, even more than that, as Israel's story continues, son of God gets moved not just to be talked about Israel, but as specifically the king of Israel that David appears in this, this prophecy, this expectation begins to happen where a son of David, a king of Israel, is understood to be a son of God. And all of this kind of connects to and goes back to the very beginning of the story of the Bible where you know Adam and Eve in the garden, where Adam is talked about and defined and, and given language to being a son of God as well. So in the Old Testament, there's kind of three groups that get referred to as the son of God. It's the nation of Israel, the kings of Israel, and all of that kind of flows from and comes out of this original kind of prototype human, Adam. And so when we study these three things, we kind of see this uh, formula develop of what sonship means. What does it mean to be a son or a son of God? Because for us, we tend to think when we hear the word son, uh, genetics, we think of like Maori and, and like we're, we're taking tests to determine like you are or you are not the father, right? We think son, we think genetic connection. Throughout the Bible, what we see is that sonship is actually a much broader term. It goes beyond just male progeny, but actually has this kind of four-part formula, which you'll see behind me. Is, uh, the, is son refers to intimacy, to image, to work, and to inheritance. When we say son of something, we're referring to one or a couple of or all of these things. And so let's just kind of look at each of these and develop an understanding of what sonship means. That Tea is way too hot. Oh, my gosh. Um, so first, um, intimacy. Intimacy or closeness, connection to specifically a fa the father, um, whoever that father might be in relation to the sonship. So they, they live with their father. They know their father, and they're known by their father. In a best-case scenario, there is love and connection with that father. There's intimacy. There is relational connection. There is geographic, living in the same um, even like plot of land back in the day as your father. And even um, Jeanette, there is a you came from that guy. He is your father. And so son of God, when we talk about this, is that this is intimacy with God. Uh, Adam and Israel are both described as having God walk with them. Adam, God walked with God in the garden. God said that he would walk with his people in the tabernacle and walk with them through the wilderness. Uh, in the son of David, the king language, who is a son of God, uh, Psalm 89, you might have read it this week as part of the, the, the reading for this week, is there's this line that talks about my steadfast love, my intimate relationship with him will not depart from him. The first aspect of sonship is one that, that comes to mind for most of us is, is closeness with that person. Or regardless of maybe where you came from in your relationship with your father, the, the best case scenario, the portrayal, is there's some level of connection of intimacy with the father. And next, the other relationship of sonship is uh, that they image their father. This is where you look and act like who your dad is. You mirror him, but this is not explicitly physical traits or DNA. Uh, Jesus gave a nickname to two of his disciples, James and John. He called them sons of thunder. 
And when Jesus called James and John sons of thunder, he was not saying you guys look like a loud, you know, shout and, you know, lightning bolts or whatever. What he was saying is you guys behave like thunder. You guys are loud and abrupt and you're forceful. You guys are sons of thunder. So this language of sons is not necessarily always talking about specifically genetic connection or even physical traits, but that you look and behave like your father, whoever that means, whether that's thunder or in the case of God, that you reflect God. For Adam, he was literally made in God's image and likeness. For Israel, God called them to be holy like I am holy. It was an image of mirroring and representing and imaging me. And the kings of Israel with God as the true king, that this Davidic line, these kings of David, were meant to reflect God's kingship and who he was to the world. So there's intimacy with the father, there's imaging the father, and then there's the family business. Um, how many of you are doing exactly what your dad did at your age? Like you're in the same family business. Any of you? None of you? Did you raise your hand, Isaac? Yeah, you are. One. There's the Jewish connection. Um, that, that not, none of, not, that is not how we go anymore. Now we get raised, we go to high school, and it's like you can do whatever you want, and we all go figure out what that is. Um, in Mark's time, what daddy did, that's what you did. You grew up doing and, and watching dad work. Jesus was referred to as the son of a carpenter. Why? Because that's what his dad did. And when Joseph died, he was just called the carpenter. Like, this is the, image, the language of sonship, was you do what your dad did. You grew up. You took over the farm. You took over the family business. You would take on the vocation of the family. You were raised to do your father's work. In John 8, 44, Jesus refers to a group of guys as um, sons of the devil. They say, your dad's the devil. Now, is Je Jesus could be making a really, really crude um, statement about your mom shacked up with the devil, right? And that's where you guys came from. Or he could be getting at something more than that. You guys are doing the family business of the devil, the one who lies and deceives. You guys are lying and deceiving. You're doing, and that's exactly what he gets into. So sonship is related to vocation. It's related to work. What you do with your life is meant to be the family business. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about in his Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Is he talking about adoption here, or is Jesus simply saying those who do peace are looking like who God is? They're doing the family business of being a peacemaker. In 2 Kings, we hear language of sons of the prophets. These were not guys that were actually, you know, the children of prophets. It was actually a brotherhood of prophets. And so here you see the son language is related far more to vocation, to the work that they did. So what this means is when we talk about someone being a son of God, it is partnership in the work of God. In Adam, when he gets made in Genesis, uh, at the end of G Genesis 1, he gets set forward with the call to form and fill the world which is exactly what God had been doing for the first six days. He was forming the world and then filling it, forming it and then filling it. I made this area and now I'm giving it this. I made this area and now I'm giving it this. And then he gives Adam the task to continue the work that I've been doing, to have dominion over this work. Adam is called to partner with God in what he's been doing in forming and filling the world. Israel similarly was called to form and film the promised land, for them to be the royal priesthood, to represent God to the world, to have the dominion that God has, to enter into the family business. And each of the kings, these sons of God, were referred to as having dominion of their ruling and reigning, being partnership in the work of God. So there's a work, a vocation. Part of what sonship means is partnership in the work. And then finally, there's inheritance from their father. Uh, this continues today where uh, 
where uh, either when, when a father would retire or, or pass away, that uh, some or all of what the father had would be given out to his children, normally with the, the lion's share, the, the most amount being given to the firstborn. And so part of what's going on here is that the incredible benefit of having a really good, wise dad is you'd have a really good, awesome inheritance, good land or good property or good uh, flocks or good you know, finances, whatever that might be, would be given to you because of your relationship to your father. And this is why throughout the New Testament is that oftentimes, as you'll see in a minute, is when we talk about sonship, um, again, we can tend to think male. Um, the New Testament writers will regularly refer to both men and women as being sons of God. Um, which kind of like, you know, scraps against our like egalitarian culture that we live in. And I think that's okay. But at the same time, why they use that language is because predominantly what would happen was inheritance would not go to daughters. Because the, the main thing was we need to keep money and, and, and flock and, and property within the tribe. And so as women would marry outside of the family, they would still be deeply connected, but they wouldn't get any inheritance because they needed to keep, it was a way of keeping, you know, the, the family from falling apart. And so why Paul does this language of, of or the New Testament writers will refer to men and women as being sons of God is because now it's actually, in our egalitarian, it's insane. Women now actually get inheritance in a culture that wouldn't give it to them. And so women have been brought up to the, the position of being like sons, which is weird for us, but makes total sense within the New Testament for them. And so this inheritance, when we talk about being a son of God, this was uh, for Israel, the promised land. For the king in Psalm 2, it was the entire nations. And for Adam, it was the inheritance of the garden and by that, all of creation. See, this language picks up and continues where it keeps happening. That what we see is when we talk about son of God, is what we're getting at is it's a picture of the ideal human. Someone who is a royal representative of God. They're doing God's work. They're mirroring and representing God. They have intimacy with God. They're receiving what God has, and they're working in the family business with him. This is what son of God means. Now, as two side notes, though, when, we, when I say son of God, here's the thing. is that Most of you, when you read son of God this week, and you were preparing for this week, what you thought of in your mind was, was, uh, was Jesus being God the Son. We were thinking Trinity. We're thinking that there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that is, that, is not, that is no fault on your own and not even wrong. Jesus absolutely shares in the essence of who God the Father is. But, and, but that, that understanding develops outside of the, the Old Testament and begins to come together in new ways in Jesus Christ. And so sometimes we can like have our Trinitarian theology that's all really nice, and we read that back. And we, we want to make sure that when we say Son of God, that Son of God and God the Son are two distinct things but are the same in Jesus Christ. I know that's strange, but it's the Trinity. Like, how, how else am I going to explain that? Um, and then the other little one is sometimes you'll see throughout the Old Testament is this language of sons of God isn't used to talk about Adam or Israel or kings, but spiritual beings, um, which is an incredible teaching that we don't need. It's connected and interrelated, but we don't even have time to go there. I would need more day quill uh, for us to freak out about that. Um, but here's, here's the important thing. Okay, what in the world does this mean about for me? Like, Adam, good for you. Like, I don't care. When we talk about the Son of God being the language that's used for Adam and for Israel and for the kings, is this is a dynamic and a prototype of what it means to be fully human. What it means to be you. We're not just talking about historical or, or you know, allegorical stories of what it means. We're talking about what it means to be you. That as children of Adam, humans, is 
that you and I are created for intimacy with God, to mirror and reflect him, to partner with him in the family business, to receive a, a gift inheritance of this, this world with, from him. So when you think through what it means to be you, this is the son of God is not simply something that we're setting aside. This is what it means to be human. And, and the problem with this, though, is that this isn't where we live in the world. That although this is the formula that the Old Testament develops for what it means to be fully human with the representative of Adam or the representative of the nation of Israel, men and women, or of these kings, is that humanity continues to fail within this Son of God dynamic. What we see is that going back to Genesis, in the very, very beginning, you guys have read this story where we've got naked people in a garden with talking snakes, and it's this strange story. But, but if we just set aside all of that and look into what it's getting at around this relationship with the Son of God, what we find is the story is that though Adam and humanity was made to be the son of God, they failed to live up to that role in relationship. That this intimacy, the closeness with God has been broken through distrust of God and the way that he's ordered the world, of what he calls good and what he calls bad, a distrust of him and idolatry or self-reliance that we place within ourselves that will dictate for ourselves what is right and wrong, what is good, true, and beautiful. As that happens, that image of God is marred within us, that we are still good, but there's a brokenness. That we do not mirror and image God the way that we were created to. And that even though God has given us dominion to partner with him in, 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 in forming and filling this world, that that work now, because the image is marred, is marred as well. That we do incredible things like uh, making cities and pizza and, uh, I mean, the good things of life. Um, and yet we have a world that's marred with destruction and chaos and death and car accidents. There is something wrong in the system in a world that's both good and broken. And the story that the Bible is telling is that that is because human beings have been made in the image of God, but that image has been marred. And so what that leads to is a brokenness where we are still walking in the dominion that God's given us, but we're doing it from a broken place. And so because of that, as this chaos and death ensues, the inheritance that we had, life in relationship with God, has been forfeited, and we are left with death, not in the garden, but in the wilderness. And so all of us, just like Adam's son, Seth, in, uh, in Genesis 5, Genesis 3, 5, is that we are all born in the image and likeness, not just of God now, but of Adam. That's what it says about Seth. Is Seth was, made, was born in the image and likeness of Adam. Image and likeness is not just talking about that Seth looked like his daddy. But that his sonship was that he was inheriting from his dad, his dad's ways of being within the world, his dad's way of working within the world, his dad's way of connecting to God, his dad's way of brokenly imaging God, that, that Seth had this. And all of us as human beings, as sons of Adam, have all received and walked in this as well. And that's why Israel's story goes the same way as Adam. It's why the kings of Israel, their stories go the same way as Adam. It's why your and my story goes the same way as Adam. It's because we have not been what we were made to be. And this is why you and I make resolutions. This is why we're different than my dog, Theo, who does not care. Because inherently, we are born with, wired for a dominion and partnership with God of taking this world somewhere great. And every single time we get to the end of the year, we realize that we have not been able to fulfill our destiny, as it were. 
This is the idea of what, what theologians refer to as original sin. That the reality of the death and chaos that's happening in this world has both been something that we actively, actively, actively contribute to and something that we have inherited from birth. That our parents and their parents and their parents and their parents and siblings and friends and other people, that this death and chaos and sin and distrust has been inherited into us from the moment that we were born. And this sounds strange for some of us, but this is something that even science has been finding to be true over the past few decades um, in what has been termed um, uh, transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. You didn't think you were going to hear that today. Uh, this is a, a process that what they've been able to find is um, for good or bad that human beings, we hand down to our children, not just through the ways that we raise them, but through the genes that we give them. And I'm not talking about denim. Uh, through the DNA that we give them, that our life and our experience gets hardwired into our DNA at an epigenetic level, is this language. And so when, when you find this, those uh, men and women who have suffered deep trauma in their lives, their children have trace levels of PTSD, even though they weren't there. They found women that were um, pregnant during the time of 9-11 and lived in New York City. Those kids had basically were existing with PTSD, though they were in their mother's womb. Children two or three generations removed from the Holocaust still had traumatic levels of depression and suicide rates and fear, and they didn't even live through it. There was a Dutch famine in 1944 and 45, which found uh, not only high levels of glucose intolerance uh, within children, but even bodies that were smaller to contribute to the fact that they didn't have food from generations ahead of time. You see, at a genetic level and at a spiritual level, these two things are what the Bible and what science are saying is that we have been handed down to us and actively contribute in handing down to our children a way of being human. And that way of being human, as history has told us and as your life tells you, does not lead to human flourishing. The effects of substance abuse, they've traced compulsive behavior, they've traced the connections between uh, addictions to pornography um, and how those connect to their, their kids. At a genetic level, what that does to people. Anger, fear, and shame. The brokenness of this world is not just something that we come out neutral but we come out through the way that we're raised and even in our genetics predisposed to continuing to follow in Adam's footsteps. Uh, Monica Goldrick, she's a psychologist, she writes this. Our culture tends to focus on the individual, on you and me, or at most on um, couples and their children, downplaying the importance of extended families, uh, though their role is enormous in shaping our lives. And the idea of, quote-unquote, moving on whenever problems arise has been a time-honored concept in our society. If you don't get along with your parents or if they don't like your choice of mate or way of life, just move to California. See the family once or twice a year. But at the deepest level, we are a part of all that we have been and a part of all our families have been. Might it be that the reasons that our resolutions don't work is because we are walking in generations and generations and generations and generations of distrust and brokenness and sin and trauma and evil of what has been done and what has been done to us, that you may follow Jesus, but you have Grandpa Adam in your bones. 
You see, most of the resolutions we make are simply just pushback against the inheritance that we have and our actions of walking within that. We desire to be better stewards of the world that we live in, of the bodies that we have, our resources, our behavior, our world, because we understand that we have dominion and we're called to form and fill the world, and we realize that we're doing a pretty shoddy job at it. But like I said, Grandpa Adam is in our bones. Regardless of what you think of Genesis and Adam and historical this or that, just consider the fact that whatever you think about history, you at least have generations of grandparents and grandparents on them and grandparents on them and grandparents on them that you are inheriting a way of being human. The conversation around nature or nurture, it's actually yes. See, all of us think throughout the year, I'm never going to be like my dad or my mom or some family member. And then you go back to see them for the holidays and you find out that you're acting in the exact same ways. My wife Erin, even as we got back to North Carolina, it was like the air in North Carolina when she got off the plane, her accent immediately came back. (laughs) And she became a Southern Belle all over again. I find myself when I was with my parents and my family over Thanksgiving that I was going back and I was having even these parts of me that I thought I was running from that were still present and my family actually brought them out. See, this whole idea of new year, new you, is, it's crock. You cannot deny where you came from. You cannot deny your family. There is a need for each and every single one of us to have a deep restart beyond just what a new year and some resolutions can do. Some kind of language to use the Old Testament of, of, of this kind of new Adam, a new son of God, some kind of new Israel, a new representative to the nations of who God is, a new, a new son of God, some kind of son of, of David, some kind of royal king who's going to issue out a kingdom in this world that will be without end, that will not be brought down by people doing what people do, some kind of son of God that's unlike the son of gods that have come, like you and me can be. We need a hard restart on humanity. Not another generation, not more education, not more resolutions. They do not solve these things without spoiling uh, the new Star Wars. Um, the, the large theme of Rise of Skywalker and really the sequels, if you put them together, is any hope in overcoming your family inheritance will only come from you finding a new family. Those of you that have seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you that haven't, you gotta go see it, Star Wars, come on. And this is exactly, the the theme throughout the the Star Wars is the same theme throughout the Old Testament, is you cannot deny the family that you come from, but that doesn't mean that you have to go in their way. But there is an invitation to something better and something greater, but it can only come through a new family. And that's exactly what we see arrive in Jesus. That's what Mark is hinting at when he opens up his gospel He says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God, as he is hinting at, there is something new happening here. There's a new Adam. There's a new Israel. There's a new king in town. Even his language of starting the letter, which we don't really read that because we're not reading in the Greek that it wrote in, but this, he begins it saying by not just the beginning of the gospel, he's saying in the beginning of the gospel, which is connecting for those readers of his original audience. We're going back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a new creation at hand in the arrival of Jesus Christ. There is something that resolutions cannot offer. A new humanity that's breaking in. 
And so on one hand, I want to let Mark unpack that as we go, but this would be a bad sermon just to stop here. So, spoiler, we're going to go into where, where, where Mark goes and where the Gospels go, where Jesus goes. Because Jesus is the Son of God's story that's breaking in and being fulfilled and fully filled and happening in new ways that were without expectation. To go back through the formula, he displays an intimacy with God that goes beyond anything that Adam or Israel or David had. He refers to God exclusively as Father, unless he's quoting the Bible. Unprecedented. You've got maybe single-digit uses. I think it was six in all of Second Temple Judaism. Between the end of the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus, six times we have in writing that somebody referred to God as Father. And normally they followed it with my Father and my Lord. Jesus is exclusively referring to God as Father, and he teaches his disciples to pray that way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. There's something new breaking in, so much so that Jesus would walk around saying things like, I and my Father are one. I am doing the work of my Father, and my Father is in me, and I am in my Father. These are the sorts of things that get you killed is when you make these sort of claims around who God is. So he shows an intimacy that goes beyond what we've ever seen. He has an image of God that goes beyond what you and I are even available and able to do and that all of us have failed to even come close to. Well, the scriptures talk about Jesus as being the image of the invisible God. John 3.16, everybody's favorite. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten, or it's his, his one and only, his unique and completely different than the rest son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not go the way of Adam, but have eternal life. Jesus would say things like, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He perfectly imaged him. Jesus would partner with God in his work and even be how God works in the world. Jesus would say things, I must do what my father has sent me to do. I must be the king that God is, but here on earth. I must establish the reign and the rule of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven here on earth, as in heaven, so below, through who I am. Jesus makes claims to be doing the work of God unlike any of the things that we do, claiming to be the Christ. That's one of the things that got him killed. And he has an inheritance, an inheritance from God that goes beyond what Adam or Israel or David could ever have hoped for. Not just in having the nations, not just having the promised land or the garden and earth, but in all of creation and all of the cosmos. Everything is the inheritance of Jesus. He's the son of God unlike any other son. And so to say that Jesus is the son of God, it is not to say that Jesus is less than human. But it's to say that he's more human than you and me. Because he's been the human that humans were always meant to be. This reboot in the story comes from Jesus. And what's so profound is that Jesus doesn't come just to show us how to be human and then slam dunk on us and like, you lose, that's how to do it. But he comes to kickstart a new humanity where we might move from the family of Adam to the family of God through this incredible thing that the, the New Testament, they, they refer to it as an adoption. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 uh, writes, uh, In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has now sent the spirit of his son into our hearts by which you cry, Abba, that is the Aramaic for Papa, or Daddy, Father. There is this adoption that is available to you and I that regardless of where you come from, Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, Democrat or Republican, wherever you are, third party, everybody is able to receive an adoption through which you can be understood and be a son of God, to have the inheritance, the, the image, the work, the, uh, to be fully human. And this is all through Jesus that this adoption is available, this new family of the sons of God with his big brother Jesus who has made this work possible. And Jesus made this work possible by being this word, the, you know, God the son became a son of Adam so that we might become sons of God. He did this through his incarnate life. This is what Christmas is all about, that God the Son became a son of Adam and died the death that Adam deserved and gave the inheritance that we have. Jesus, it was like a reversal of the Esau story. Have you guys ever heard of the Esau story? He had the inheritance, oldest born. He sold it for like cruddy stew and gave it to his brother. It's like one of the saddest stories. You're like, dude, it was like Campbell's like soup. It wasn't, and you gave away everything. It's this reversal of the story in Jesus Christ where Jesus took the, the Campbell's soup, except the Campbell's soup was like death, and gave us the inheritance. This is the turn of what's going on when Mark points to Jesus being the son of God is that this, this is what's breaking in, some kind of new creation. Where now, through adoption, we can have an intimacy with God unlike anything we've ever had before. Where he's not the distant creator. He's not a thing to be studied. He is, he's Abba. He's Papa close. Where we are being formed into the image of Christ. Paul will refer to us being conformed in Romans 8 to the image of his son. Where that marred image that you and I carry is now being fixed as the image of Christ who is the image of God is being built in each and every one of us through his spirit where we now operate within the work of Jesus who is doing the work of the Father, proclaiming and displaying what the kingdom of God looks like here and now through me, through my work, my neighborhood, my city, my gifts and my skills and my personality and my gender, that this is what Jesus and the kingdom of God looks like right here and right now. And that we have an inheritance. Like I said, where, where our death has been traded for, for life, the inheritance of God has been given to us as he took the inheritance of Adam for us. Where resurrection is now the hope for all of those who are in Christ. It's the reality for Christians who know God as father through the sonship of Jesus. And so to be called son of God is inclusion in the divine community of father, son, and Holy Spirit. That this is what it means to be human. Being exalted to this new transformed identity, this new family, a new way to be human that breaks off all of the family traditions that we had been carrying beforehand. This resurrection that we await for, that we wait for ourselves, we wait for Michaela, we wait for this resurrection is when our physical makeup mirrors and matches what God has said is true about us because of our adoption. Where we are like our father without death, without sin, full of joy and peace and laughter, where we are fully human in a way that we never thought possible. We'll end with a quote from Michael Reeves as we move into 2020 from Rejoicing in Christ. Oh, he writes, you simply couldn't have a vision of hope more different from that sneaking suspicion many Christians have 
that eternal life will mean being less truly human, having slightly less fun, and somehow being less alive. Now and for eternity, becoming more like Christ means becoming more human, not less. Created in the image of God, we will be what we were meant to be, untriveled, unbent, and unfurled. As we go into 2020, as you're thinking through, I'm not anti-resolutions. Go for resolutions. But would you just consider moving into 2020, what habits, what behaviors, what ways of existing would mirror who God says you already are? What does it mean for 2020 for you to become a little less unbent, a little less untriveled, a little more human? And to receive and acknowledge that any step forward will only come through the Holy Spirit guiding you. Any hope for humanity, any hope for you will only come from the Spirit of Jesus working within you. And so why don't we pray?